Welcome everybody to this um, next episode of our very new project. It's called Morning Coffee with Shoulder Surgeons and it's um, provided by the junior committee of the SESEC. And uh, right now we're uh, at the Poznan Congress, the 29th Congress of the European Society of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery here in Poznan in Poland. And I have two special guests here with me. The one is sitting right next to me, it's Marco Nabergoy from the hospital Val d'Otra. Uh, it's an orthopedic hospital in Ankaran in beautiful Slovenia. And those of you who might listen to us uh, from the US or from abroad, Slovenia is a country south to Austria and north to Croatia. So it's very close to the, um, well, to the Adrian Sea. And in fact, I've been there last year in summer and it's gorgeous, it's very beautiful. And the second guest, um, we just said maybe I, I need a correct introduction, and but if I say uh, Professor Bernard Mori is sitting here, maybe I do not really need this introduction because he's a, a very famous and well-known man in shoulder and elbow surgery. And uh, he's the uh, emeritus and uh, he was director and chairman of the orthopedics department at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, USA. And it's a great pleasure and great honor to have you here. And um, the junior committee, they've um, written down some things and questions they want to ask. So I'm uh, very excited about uh, this interview. So Marco, here you go. Thank you, Robert. Um, I feel excited to start with a new project, a new podcast uh, with you. We, the members of the Young Forum of SECEC, um, will be able to speak with the great uh, shoulder and elbow um, surgeons of the world and try to understand uh, what made them great. So I'm very uh, happy to have uh, Dr. Bernard Mori with us. And um, I would like to ask you, so in your career, you did reconstructions of the knee, hip and the elbow, but it was the elbow that made you famous. We could even say that you made the elbow famous. So could you explain to us what led you to focus especially on the elbow joint? Why elbow? Yes. Well, it is a question that gets asked fairly often. And uh, the first thing I would say is that I think as an orthopedic surgeon, I was very fortunate in that I loved all aspects of orthopedics. So I didn't start the profession with the intent of focusing on one area, uh, one area and becoming well known for it or having any particular notoriety. It was just, I liked the, the uh, entire spectrum of the profession. But I did have, for some reason, and I guess I'd have to think further why that reason is, I did kind of want to make a contribution to the specialty. And I had that instinct when I started. Uh, and I thought I'd probably do it in the research lab because I had some research interests. Um, and I got some advice very early on. I was a first year resident and I asked the head of our research uh, effort at Mayo um, what he would recommend. I said, told him I was interested in basic research. I was interested in maybe contributing to the specialty. I was at Mayo so I thought I had an opportunity to contribute. What would he recommend? And he very simply said, work in a vacuum. And then he turned around and walked away. He didn't explain it. He didn't need to explain it, I guess. And so 
That was the advice I got, and I was on a rotation with the hand surgeons at the time. And within a couple of weeks of that advice, I operated on two patients with uh, my senior consultants, and we removed silastic radial heads from the elbow. They had both fractured and um, failed. So I went to the library. In those days, that's how we looked stuff up. Uh, and um, looked up silastic radial heads, and there was no articles on it. So I found a monograph written by the man that developed it, a person by the name of Alfred Swanson. And I was amazed at the fact that there was almost no scientific basis for using a silastic implant. There was no testing. There was no series on it. And my experience of two is they all failed, at least the only two I'd ever heard of. So then I started just reading more about it, and I found there was nothing to read to speak of. And then I started looking up more generic questions about the elbow, the forces across it, the mechanism, why were these failing on my own, and found that there was hardly any articles on anything about the elbow. So that, it dawned on me, there's my vacuum. So, um, uh, at Mayo, we had a very special program that this person that gave me the advice, Dr. Kelly, uh, was responsible for. Uh, we could spend an extra six months in the lab and get a master's degree from the University of Minnesota. And my degree is in mathematics, and so um, I wanted to understand the elbow better. And to understand the elbow, I wanted to understand the forces that uh, accounted for the problems of the elbow. But you can't calculate forces unless you know the kinematics, how it moves. And um, so I, I kept working my way back until I got to some really basic question. So I uh, decided to use an analysis of the kinematics of the elbow as my master's thesis. And that was my master's thesis. And I got a master's degree in biomechanics from the University of Minnesota. And that gave me insight into how the elbow actually functions and moves, and, and nobody had ever described that before. And then from that experience, I just continued to ask questions. And again, it was a vacuum. <laughs> nobody had ever really paid much attention to it. They avoided it. Uh, that was the other thing that I think was to my advantage in a sense, because nobody was interested in the elbow because it was so unpredictable or as the saying goes, predictably unpredictable. If it got injured, it got stiff. Sometimes trivial injuries, the elbow got stiff. So people just avoided it. And so I decided, once again, that's my vacuum. So your main motivation for research was understanding the unknown. Yes, yes. Okay. So yes. In, what do you see as your main breakthrough or achievement in elbow surgery in your career, what, what are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud of um, following the advice that I give in, uh, to the residents and fellows in training is to their practice should embody the scientific basis of clinical management, meaning they have to have a reason for doing what they're doing. And so, um, in, in, as it relates to the elbow, uh, when I started looking at issues that relate to the joint, uh, we were already successfully, thanks to John Charnley, replacing the hip joint. And uh, it was just about the time that the condylar concept of a knee replacement came out. And so it looked like those two major joints were 
well on their way of being solved in terms of uh, addressing the serious implications of arthritis at the hip and the knee that was disabling and ended people's careers. That was being handled and managed and a lot of effort was being uh, expended to look into that. But the elbow was an unforgiving joint. There were efforts to replace the elbow joint and they were dismal failures. In one instance, a person told me that he had replaced 20 elbows with a certain design and he called me the day he said, Bernie, I just removed the last elbow I'd ever put in, they've all failed, 100%. So um, to, to specifically answer your question, uh, understanding the kinematics of the elbow told me that the designs at the time were not replicating that. And so I thought, if we're gonna have a successful replacement, which we must have in today's times, um, in those days' times, um, we have to understand what the normal function is and the normal uh, kinematics. And so it said we had to loosen up the hinge. It couldn't be a rigid hinge. It had to be what we called a sloppy hinge and let the muscles dictate how the elbow moved. Um, and then the, an analysis of the forces indicated that the forces across the elbow, if you had a weight in your hand, were orders of magnitude more than people thought they were. And people would say, well, it's not a weight-bearing joint. Why is it failing so readily? It turns out that the forces across the elbow are orders of magnitude more than were expected, as I said, and it, in a sense, was a weight-bearing joint. And so the forces were calculated to occur in a certain direction. So we figured out if we added a flange to the stem of the implant, it would resist that posterior-directed vector. And so we made two modifications of an existing implant and we loosened up the hinge and we added a flange. And uh, then that particular device, which was called the Coonrad Mori, uh, became the standard uh, elbow replacement. And subsequent successful designs have incorporated both those features, loose hinge with a flange. So I think, that, I th I think that's what uh, I would consider probably the greatest uh, contribution. But, but I would emphasize the process. It was... The, the, I can tell you the process I went to to understand the forces was I uh, had a very busy clinical practice. So I was kind of doing this on the side. And so um, I called all the x-rays of all the patients that had had elbow replacements at the Mayo Clinic up to that point in time. And one night I went into my office and spent all night till the next morning looking at x-rays. And when you put up one x-ray after another, you can develop the pattern that you don't develop if you do it over a longer period of time. And thanks to that all-nighter, I recognized the, the monotonous mechanism of failure. And that was what, that is the posterior displacement, because the stem was not strong enough to resist the forces across it. But if you had a flange, it would be. So it was that all-nighter gave me the insight to modify the current implant to address the things that we had figured out. So it was going from understanding the mode of failure, understanding with our studies what might be um, used to address the mode of failure, and then talking a company into incorporating those into, uh, into an implant. And then uh, we piggybacked on the fact that Mayo was already 
had developed a registry, and Mayo is given credit for having the first organized registry of joint replacements in the world. Uh, it was a private practice. Uh, and um, so as we started doing the elbows, the elbows went into our total joint registry. So we had a very good database to tell us what was happening. And so we then uh, started looking up or assessing the outcomes. And so we had the minimum two-year outcomes, and we looked at the patients with rheumatoid and the post-traumatic, and we could look at it as a function of the underlying diagnosis. So we developed a very rich kind of library of articles that uh, define the outcome of total elbow for various uh, surgical indications. So that kind of closed the circle from trying to understand why a joint couldn't be successfully replaced, studying it, using the study to modify an implant and then study the outcome, clinical outcome of the implant. So that was the full circle. And I think that was kind of the contribution, the method, if you will, as well as the uh, um, specific recommendations for change. And what was your uh, biggest life-changing opportunity? As marrying my wife. Uh, actually, um, I was working at NASA when I got out of college. And uh, I was enrolled in law school. So I was going to be an attorney. And uh, that summer, I met a very attractive nursing student. And she was a very dedicated person to her patients. And um, now she's my wife of 55 years now. But she really was a motivation to uh, change directions. And so that was probably the biggest moment in my life was meeting my wife and marrying her. And she uh, supported me through all these years of very long hours with four children at home. And she took care of the house and so that I could focus on my career. And uh, so I think marrying her was the biggest moment of my life. Congratulations on the successful marriage. Um, what would you advise someone how to have the, the best balance between family and work? Well, I have a saying. Uh, if you don't know an answer to these kind of questions or um, if you aren't paying attention and somebody says, what do you think, and you don't even know what they were talking about, um, the solution is just say, well, it's all about communication if you don't know the topic. But that is the answer to your question. I think my, we, my wife Carla and I talked a lot before we got married about our goals, her goals, my goals. So we understood that. And then the communication so that you uh, understand. Since she was a nurse, she understood that when I became a physician, um, I had a responsibility to my patients, which I said, when I took the oath, it was going to be my ultimate responsibility. Then we got married, and as I mentioned the other day, that became the ultimate primary goal. Now there's two, so there's always a conflict. So the best you can do is understand at the moment what the most important thing is. But that has to be a balance. There has to be 50% of the time it was professional, 50% of the time it was personal, or something like that. You can't say I'm balancing it and 95% of your decisions go to caring for the patient or 95% of the decisions when there's a conflict are, are personal. It really is a balance. It depends on the circumstances. And uh, I was very fortunate because orthopedics typically doesn't have so many emergencies that you just have to be there instantaneously. You know, as, as you know, it, 
that those are kind of the vascular insults, and there's just, or if you're on call and there's fractures. But, um, and, and particularly if you have an elective practice, you can, you got the time to balance things so you can still take care of your patient, but it doesn't have to be exactly now if you're engaged in a family event of some sort. But you gotta work at it, and you have to think about it in advance that that's what you want to do. If you're not making an effort to have some balance, uh, then uh, it isn't gonna happen. It's an active, like in the cellular mechanisms, the active transport, it's an active, it's an active process. And, and a corollary to that, I think, is when, you, if you have children or when you have children, that's the, that is your family, the, the children as, as well as your wife. And you have to spend time with them. And my wife taught me that when you spend time with them, it's not always on your terms. So you get home and say, okay, here I am. Who wants to talk to me? You got to be around the house enough so when they decide they want to talk to you, you're there. Um, and there was an instance where I came home early one night, at 7 o'clock or something, and because my wife says, you need to talk to Maggie. And so I was sitting there, and Maggie comes in and says, hey, Dad, and goes up to her room, and then comes down, hey, Dad, and walks out. And I told my wife, I said, you know, I'm sitting here, and, you know, I'm ready to talk to Maggie, and she just blew in and blew out. And she says, no, you don't get it. You don't do it on your terms. You do it on her terms. So that's the kind, but that's the communication we had. And I learned from that that it was, you know, I, at work I could make, I could call the shots, but at home I really had to let the kids call the shots or let, the, you know, the circumstance kind of play out. So looking back, would you change anything? Uh, yeah, I made a mistake uh, when I was, um, I was on the Board of Governors of Mayo and, um, I made a mistake of thinking that uh, everybody on the board had a great sense of their own um, self and value, so to speak. And so I was very outspoken. I thought that the reason that I was on the board was to give my opinion, even if it was maybe not the most popular, but that's why I was there, because everybody was supposed to bring an aggregate knowledge base, and, or to bring a, their knowledge base, and then in the aggregate we could make a good decision. And so I don't think I was tactful enough because I thought everybody wanted, you know, you might say the blunt truth. I don't, I'm not saying that I was rude or anything, but I wasn't as tactful. And so a subsequent member of our department went on the board after I did. And my advice to him was think twice because the board, there was only one or two surgeons on the board. And internists don't like people that make definitive decisions based on the data quickly. I did. And, and it threatened them, quite frankly. So I told my colleague, think twice, and when you give your opinion, really soften it up. Don't, don't give it the way you would give it to another orthopedic surgeon, because you're not dealing with surgeons. So I, I think that's, that was my big mistake, is that I didn't read that fast enough and I got the reputation as being definitive and that sometimes means or, or implies that you didn't consider all the variables. Well, I did, but you can still be definitive. You don't have to act like you don't know what you're doing. So that was my biggest mistake, I think. So a bit of diplomacy always helps. Yeah, absolutely.
Yeah. And for the last question, could you share with us what is the main rule or perhaps a quote that you live by? <laughs> well, uh, that implies I live by a quote. Um, I think there's two, actually. Uh, I'm not sure what the second one is, but one comes to mind that it's a little more deep than professional. Um, it's personal. And it's from the Bible, from St. James. And it is, life is but a mist. It appears for a while and then vanishes. So I've had a very successful career, objectively, um, and that's going to go away. And then it ain't going to matter anymore. So I think that is something that I think about a lot, is life is but a mist. It appears for a while and then vanishes. Um, professionally, the, the quote that I guess I like or the phrase that I like is the scientific basis of clinical practice because this is what I tell the residents and the fellows. You've got to give me a reason for doing this. It can't be because this is what you were taught or what somebody showed you. What, what's, the, what's the basis for it? Because if you know the basis, you can extrapolate into the unknown. And if all you know is how you do it this way, and then when you get to an unknown, it's harder to extrapolate. So one of the approaches that I tried to use when I was teaching is say, we don't do things by rote, but we do things by principle. And the value of that is when you get out, if you know kind of the principles of why we did what we were doing at the time, you can apply those principles to something you've never seen before. You can jump off from what you have seen to what you haven't seen reliably with some degree of confidence. And um, I think that's kind of an important concept uh, as well, scientific basis of clinical practice. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Mori, for your wonderful answers and precious time. And um, I wish you all the best in the future. Well, thank you. Thank you for your interesting questions, and I wish you all the best in the future. So it was wonderful uh, listening to both of you sitting here right next to me. I, I think I will remember this, this picture in my mind because it's a very nice and beautiful picture here. Mark is sitting next to me and Bernard Morris sitting next to me and having this really intense and nice talk. And um, I really want to thank both of you for this beautiful conversation. Thank you. And um, I wish you a nice day and uh, a nice time here on the Poznan Congress. Thank you very much. Thank you. Not at all. Thank you. This was Morning Coffee with Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons. Today with Professor Bernard Mori from the USA and Marko Nabrgoj from Slovenia. My name is Robert Hudek. I hope you enjoyed and stay tuned.